But as many of you know, this summer we have been in a serious summer in the Psalms and have many of our staff members come and bring the word. And so this morning, I'm so privileged and honored to have Pastor Kirsten uh, Cronwall, who's going to be bringing the word on Psalm 51. Pastor Kirsten is one of our family life uh, pastors. She is usually up there working with the kids and discipling kids. And I absolutely love this young lady. Um, uh, she's been with us for quite a while, a few years now. And uh, she's one of our master's Bible college graduates. She grew up in this church for many years. And uh, I love her heart for discipleship. I love the way she thinks. I love her heart for missions. So Pastor Kirsten, we are ready to receive what you have for us here today. Thank you. come and bring the word. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Pastor Tim. And um, I just want to say thank you to Tim for allowing a few of us to speak for the first time at GT on this stage this summer. So thank you, Tim, for your support, just for honoring us and for believing in us and for giving us this opportunity. And thank you for all being here today. Um, I am really honored to have the opportunity to speak to you and to share. And that was amazing. I feel like I could have let you guys stay up for longer, but I'm thankful to be here today. Um, but I just wanted to say, be careful careful when you guys give feedback to Pastor Tim, because if you love us who are doing this for the first time, he might ask us to do it again. So just be careful, all right? <laughs> so for those of you who don't know me, I am Kirsten. I am uh, South African. My family, I was born there and raised there until 2005 when we moved here uh, to Burlington. I love rock climbing. I love outdoor adventures. I love good food and good coffee. Um, and I have attended Glad Tidings for over 15 years. Um, I went to Bible college um, in 20, well, I graduated in 2019, um, and I joined the staff team here, so I've been here for a couple years. So I'm one of our family life pastors here. So I oversee our school age programming for our Lift Kids. Um, so I'm usually upstairs with our kids, with many of your kids or grandkids, and with many of you who are part of our amazing team to make it all possible. You'll see us in our red Lift t-shirts. You can't miss us. Um, but just thank you, guys. It's an honor uh, to be able to partner with parents and with our team to, to lead kids closer to Jesus. Um, so today we are continuing in week seven. Crazy how fast the time is going by. But week so seven of our Summer in the Psalm series. And if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to turn or scroll to Psalm 51, where we are going to be reading today um, later on. And if you would like to, if you have the YouVersion Bible app, you can actually search for our event on YouVersion that you can follow along with some of the notes um, and take some notes of your own if you're a note taker. How many of you have enjoyed diving into the Psalms this summer? Awesome. So we are super excited. Our kids are actually in their second week of our series called Wonderful, as they are going through the book of Psalms this month together too, which is, I find pretty cool that it lines up with what we're going through. But if you are jumping into the series today, or if you have been following along, we have learned that the book of Psalms is such an amazing book that, as Pastor Tim has shared, it helps us to shape our prayers, shape our worship, and shape our understanding of who God is. They teach us truths about the character of God. They help us in our journey of following him through the high seasons and the low seasons. And I love, they give us permission to be real with God and real with our feelings, our struggles and our joys. They speak to us and they help us to pray when we don't know what else to say. 
So when I was invited to speak, I immediately thought of choosing Psalm 51, but I first decided to read through the entire book of Psalms, narrow it down to about 20 options, then I chose my top three, and I eventually came back to Psalm 51 after all. I definitely didn't make it easy on myself. But here's why I came back to this Psalm. Within the first two weeks of my first year in Bible college, we went on a spiritual integration retreat to a place called Elam Lodge. Now some of you may have actually been there before for our men's retreats with GT. And while we were there one afternoon, they encouraged us to try some different practices to help us to spend time with God in ways that were maybe a bit out of our comfort zone. And so one of the practices was a prayer labyrinth. So it was kind of like this big maze laid out with stones on the ground. And we were encouraged to just walk through it, to slow down, to pray, to read our Bible. And just like as we walked through, it kind of like represents maybe the journey that we're on in life and in different seasons. so in the middle of this maze, I sat down, I opened my Bible to, you guessed it, Psalm 51, and I was just inspired and encouraged and felt that God really spoke to me um, through this beautiful response of King David. Now this is a beautiful Psalm, but it's also a challenging one. It isn't all about worshiping and admiring our amazing God and creator. It's one of the seven penitential psalms, or has been referred to as one of the psalms of atonement. So it's a psalm that has helped Jews and Christians for generations to confess their sins to God and to find new life and peace and forgiveness with him. So let's dive in. So first, in your Bible, the top might have a little opening description that says that it's written to the chief musician or to the director of music. And so as Charles Spurgeon says, it's not only written for private meditation, but for the public service of song, like what we're doing here today. It's suitable for the loneliness of individual penitence or repentance, but this matchless psalm is equally well adapted for an assembly of the poor in spirit. The New International Version says it's a psalm of David and it gives some context when the prophet Nathan came to David after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So great, there's clear context, we know exactly who wrote this psalm, but maybe not so great. I chose a psalm that talks about sin. But bear with me, because this Psalm of David, I think, is a great picture of what confession should look like for us as believers. And it results in a renewal of joy and gladness in God's presence. So who was David? David was the greatest king of Israel. He was an amazing leader, warrior, and worshiper, but he started off as a young shepherd boy. He had a heart of worship. But as the youngest of eight brothers, he was the least likely choice to be chosen by God and anointed by the prophet Samuel to become king of Israel. But after his anointing, instead of going right to the palace, he went back to the fields, back to worshiping God and taking care of sheep. And this was where his character was deepened and humility grew. His rise to power and kingship was one of loneliness, patience, suffering, and trust in God, as he literally had to run for his life from the tyrannical King Saul, whose throne David was meant to inherit. Jean Edwards, an author of an incredible book called A Tale of Three Kings, says these were David's darkest hours. Now we know them as his pre-king days, but he didn't. He may have assumed this was his lot forever. 
Suffering was giving birth, humility was being born. And sometimes we have to go through these seasons of waiting for our own character and humility to develop, just like David. So David was an incredible leader. He was an example as every king of Israel after him, all of the kings were evaluated against David. And the obedient kings, you'll read in your Bible, they say that they were considered devoted to God as they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as their forefather David had done. David's portrayed as the ideal king who becomes an image of the future messianic king from the line of David. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophets in the Old Testament speak of the coming Messiah as being a new David or a king like David. So as we read through the Psalms, we'll get to see this heart for God through his Psalms as he exalts and honors God no matter what he is going through in every season. David was one awesome guy, but he was also human. 1 Kings 15.5 says, For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. He was not perfect, and he fell short and made bad choices, just like each of us do, whether we like to admit it or not. So if you had to go back in your Bibles, you'd be able to read this story in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Now, I'm not gonna read through the whole thing today, but I felt that it would be important for us to just understand what happened that led to David writing this psalm. It starts off saying that at the time when kings went off to war, David instead stayed at his palace. Now the Bible doesn't say why he stayed behind or what he was doing when he should have been with the Israelite army. But I imagine that he maybe wasn't spending a lot of his time worshiping God. Now, why do I think that? I know it's not actually in the Bible, but Pastor Tim has shared a few weeks ago even that true worship should always lead to holiness and right living in the worshiper if we do not commit ourselves to the most important thing in times of hardship and struggle, we will fall into sin. So when David's eyes weren't on his men leading them into battle, and they weren't on his God, he instead became distracted and disoriented away from that which truly mattered. He became consumed with something that wasn't his and willfully crossed over a line that God had drawn in his law. His first sin was to ask for Bathsheba, who was another man's wife, to be brought to him after he saw her bathing on her roof from his balcony of the palace. And when she fell pregnant by David, he tried to cover his tracks by deception, conspiracy, lying, and even murder as he sent Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to the front lines of battle, hoping that he would be killed. David fell further into the trap of sin as he abused his power and dishonored God's law. This wasn't just a momentary mistake, but David became disoriented as he turned away from God and pursued his own desire. He lied to himself, convincing himself that he could get away with it. He covered it up from others, creating a bigger mess in his wake. But worst of all, he turned away from God. He turned his focus from God for almost a year. So after Bathsheba's time of mourning for her husband was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. 
But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The thing that stood out to me in a way that hadn't really before was that David had avoided God during this whole time. At least nine months, you know, with the pregnancy and all. Um, that's a really long time to, to stay away from God's presence. And this is the same David who is called a man after God's own heart. So God sent the prophet Nathan to David. And David finally let God's voice get through to him after many long months of trying to do things on his own. His conscience was finally awakened as he realized the greatness of his guilt. Charles Spurgeon says he returned to his harp when his sinful nature was awakened, or spiritual nature was awakened, sorry. And he poured out his song to the accompaniment of sighs and tears. So this psalm comes out of this story. It comes from David's blackest moment of self-knowledge, yet it explores not only the depths of David's guilt, but some of the farthest reaches of salvation. So I invite you to stand with me as I'm going to read what David wrote in his prayer to his father found in Psalm 51, verses one to 17. It says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Now this is the center of the psalm here, verses 10 to 12. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. You may be seated. Now, I don't know about you, but it can be easy for me when I'm reading stories in the Bible to identify myself and see myself in the good characters. We prefer to identify ourselves with the disciples rather than the Pharisees, or with the righteous rather than the wicked. It's natural for us to recognize and be upset by sin in others, but it's harder for us to acknowledge it in ourselves. Jesus even used a parable saying that we would first point out a tiny speck in someone else's eye before we would acknowledge that we have a plank in our own eye. First John verse, chapter one, verses eight and nine says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, a few years ago, in my last year, my fourth year of Bible college, during the busyness of one of the semesters, I took a break one evening and I drove to a nearby park in Peterborough. I hadn't been there very often, but I just wanted to take a break from my assignments and spend some time with God in nature and just worshiping him. And so as I drove, I went down a small street that had some houses on either side, and on one house to my left, I spotted a little sign that said they were selling butter tarts. So after about an hour of of time, of peaceful, refreshing time, worshiping and reading my Bible, I decided that on my way back home, I would drive past this house to pick up some butter tarts, because who can say no to butter tarts? So I turned onto a street, which in the impending darkness of evening looked maybe a little different than I remembered. So as I was driving, I thought maybe I have ended up one street over from where I was supposed to be. So I was driving and I was looking over to my left through the houses, trying to see if there was a street on the other side, somehow expecting that I might see the scent of butter tarts rising from their kitchen. But as I was looking, my front right tire burst. I had drifted into the curb and got in my first flat tire. Immediately, the peaceful, refreshed, hopeful for butter tarts feeling that I had vanished and was replaced by stress, frustration, and a bit of anger. So the butter tarts suddenly were not really worth it if this is what it had led to. The first thing I did was call my dad. I got out to assess the damage. Unfortunately, the tire was not fixable at all, and I got to changing my tire to put my spare on. And thankfully, a guy from Timmins stopped by to help, even though he had less experience changing tires than I did, but he was feeling gentlemanly to help the stressed, stranded, butter tartless girl on the side of the road. So I know this is a silly illustration, but hopefully you caught that my focus was maybe a little bit more on the butter tarts than it was on the road ahead of me, considering I mentioned butter tarts at least seven times. But this story reminded me of the significance of keeping our eyes and our focus on what really matters. I know this is a basic driver's ed lesson. You steer where you stare. Keep your eyes on the road. But I think it can also translate to our lives with God. We need to keep our gaze on him if we want to keep moving towards him. But Satan will use any opportunity to tempt us into sin. And sometimes it can be big and catastrophic, but often he uses good things to draw us away from God. Maybe it might be influence, your hobby, someone you love, your job or schooling, money, Now, these things can be good, but if they take our focus away from God, they become an idol to us. And if the enemy can get our attention, he can get to our hearts. Where was David's gaze fixed? Where has your gaze been fixed recently? When we become disoriented, God doesn't want us to feel shame, but conviction is a blessing for us to recognize when our hearts aren't aligned with God and acknowledge our brokenness and turn back to him. He is always there, ready to embrace us when we come back to him. 
So I wanna take us through this Psalm of David and we'll see that there's a pattern that we can actually follow to confess our sins and find forgiveness, new life, and peace with God. There are three main parts to the Psalm that show the three requests of David. So part one, verses one to seven, David asks, cleanse me. David asks for God's mercy and cleansing and it's according to God's, sorry, next piece. He asks for mercy and cleansing according to and acknowledging his brokenness and his sin. The next part here, verses eight to 12, his request is restore me. David wants to experience joy as he asks for a new heart. And he offers, or he knows that the condition of his heart matters to God. Now verse three, he asks with humility, use me. David's response to transformation is to share his faith and praise God while offering all that he has. Are you ready? All right, let's dive in. So part one, verses one to seven, this first section is David's request, cleanse me. We can relate to this section as we acknowledge our own need for cleansing. Now this might seem like a weird term to use because we don't follow the Old Testament practices and systems, but we can recognize our need for forgiveness as we walk through David's example of confession and repentance. In verse one, David begins his prayer by recognizing his need for mercy according to God's unfailing love and great compassion. We don't deserve forgiveness for what we've done. But when we reorient back to God, we can recognize and praise God for who he is and repent for turning away from him. David declared earlier in Psalm 86, verse 15, he said, but you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. God is always waiting, ready to show mercy and forgiveness out of his love and faithfulness when we turn back to him. Warren Wearsby says, the sinfulness of humans doesn't mean that people can't do anything good, but that their goodness can't earn them entrance into God's family. Aren't you thankful for God's mercy and love and compassion for us today? David continues in verses two to seven, asking for God to wash and cleanse him of his sinfulness, because where God desires truth and wisdom within us, sin actually stains our inner lives. If we look at David's attitude before and after or during this prayer, we see how it's completely shifted. He started off with a self-absorbed mindset that led to his adultery with Bathsheba and the aftermath as he tried to cover up his tracks. But now his perspective is, how can I treat God in this way? As Pastor Tim has shared, Jesus wants to go after some deep things in our hearts. He loves us, but he convicts us. But he never pushes us down. He always lifts us up because he knows that we're better than that. In the New Testament, we learn how Jesus supersedes this Old Testament understanding of God's forgiveness. In Hebrews 9, verses 13 and 14, it says, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctifies them so that they are outwardly clean. But how much more than will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse us, our consciences, from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. 
It cost Jesus his life as he took our place. Colossians 2 verse 13 and 14 says, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Today we find our cleansing and forgiveness in what Jesus did for us on the cross, amen? There's always an invitation for us to repent and reorient to worship the one true God to whom we owe everything. And the encouragement that we can find is if God can forgive David of his sins of lying and adultery and even murder, he can certainly forgive all other sins. The second part of the psalm in verses eight to 12 shows us that David asks God, restore me. He understands it's the condition of his heart that matters. And he finally realizes that he needs God to transform him from the inside out into something new, not just leave him with a washed version of his old heart. He needed a completely new heart. I've loved going through the Psalms together this summer, and in so many of the Psalms of David, we see how beautifully he understands what it means to know God and to be known by God. God sees every part of us, of who we are, but we try to hide pieces of ourselves from him whenever we sin, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden when they hid from their creator. Now who here is a dog person? All right, maybe half of you, the rest of you might be cat people, but we're talking to the dog people today. So I have a little dog named Luna, she's three and a half, and I feel like the most obvious example of hiding in shame for doing something wrong can be seen in dogs. When Luna knows that she is in trouble, like the one time she pulled the tablecloth off the kitchen table so she could get to a bar of chocolate on it, or the one time that she ate a hole in my mom's slipper, which maybe any of you who have had a puppy in the house would relate to that. But if Luna has done something wrong, she knows she's in trouble, and she will go and hide under a table or under the couch as if, if she can't see me, I can't see her. So if you don't know what we're talking about, we have a few examples of some adorable dogs who know when they are in trouble for doing something that they shouldn't. So let's watch this together. Huh? Get it over. Get it over. Get it over. Get it over. Get it Cooper, did you eat all of your treats? Cooper. Who took the cookie off the counter? Seems to have a problem, don't we? What is this? Come here. Okay, now then. Who 
Has done this. Come here. Hey, you have a good day? Come here, you have a good day? Did you have a good day? Come here, Missy, did you have a good day? Huh, did you have a good day? Hey, loves you. You have a good day? But who tore my pants up, though? Oh, y'all don't want to talk about that? Y'all don't want to talk about that? So those were adorable, and my point is, I feel like God is kind of like a dog owner. Now, stay with me. Pastor Lauren compared the Holy Spirit to trail mix, so just bear with me. I think God's definitely an animal person, because he created all of them in their uniqueness, but I think that God looks at us with such love and adoration, while still becoming upset when we sin because ultimately he knows that it hurts us. When we feel ashamed because of our sin, the last thing that we hear is joy and gladness. The last thing that we feel like doing is rejoicing. We would rather try to cover it up like David did so that others don't find out or try to bury it deep inside so that we don't have to face the consequences of it. But as verse eight shows us, when we repent, we get to experience God's joy. Because we have been honest with God and have been forgiven, he takes away our guilt and shame. And he reminds us of his love for us and the joy that he has for us. Psalm 139, verse 23, you might know this one. It says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The condition of our hearts and our hidden thoughts will not remain hidden from God. They'll eventually come out in what we do or in what we say. So we need to look in ourselves but also we need to invite God to reveal what is hidden within us and give us a new heart. The center of the Psalm, verses 10 to 12, could you read this aloud with me? Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David asks for a pure heart, a steadfast spirit, and the joy of salvation. In the Old Testament, God prophesied through the prophet Ezekiel, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their hearts of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. Only God, our creator, can miraculously create a new heart within us. But this is important, it's also a process of sanctification, where each day we become more like Jesus when we have our lives oriented after him. And as we become more like him, we will more naturally live like him and honor him in what we do and what we say. But if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that living in a way that pleases God is hard, right? So that's why we need not only a new heart, but also a willing or a steadfast spirit, which is the desire to obey him and live for him. We need both, a new heart and a steadfast spirit. 
God wants to give us what it takes to live in a way that pleases him. Let me say that again in case you missed it. God wants to give us what it takes to live in a way that pleases him. Paul prayed in Hebrews 13 verse 21 that God may equip you with everything good for doing his will and may he work in us what is pleasing to him and it's through Jesus Christ and for his glory. And Peter says in 2 Peter 1 verse three, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. God doesn't just send us off and sit back to watch us fail, but he gives us his Holy Spirit to work in us, to lead us, and to guide us in our decisions and our day-to-day journey with him. And Derek Kidner says, such a spirit is God's own antidote to temptation. Now the best news is that when we experience new life in Jesus, we can experience joy because of what he's done. And it's beyond anything that the world can offer us. David asks for God to restore the joy of salvation, which he can do for us when we find renewal in him again and again. Then the willingness to live for him will come out of love rather than obligation as we are motivated to honor and praise God with our lives because we're just so amazed at the life that he offers us. I pray that we may know and be reminded of the joy of salvation today. Now I love this final part of the Psalm where David says, God, use me. And this is the response that happens in us when we receive God's forgiveness and mercy. Verse 13, and the NIV says, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Or as Eugene Peterson puts it in the message translation, give me a job teaching rebels your ways so that the lost can find their way home. Isn't that beautiful? When we experience the joy of salvation, we can't help but want to share it with others who don't know Jesus yet. There's such a clear connection between experiencing restoration, which then leads us to desire others to experience it as well. And faith in God actually produces in us an overwhelming desire to do great things for the kingdom. Our next natural response is just to praise God. Just as forgiveness is dependent on God, our praise is also dependent on him. So I want you all to take a deep breath in. Ready? And out. God has given us the very breath in our lungs. So what else can we do but use it to glorify and praise him for all that he has done and for his faithfulness? Now finally, David acknowledges that he has nothing to give back to God in return for the abundant blessings he's received from God, except his heart in its broken state and full of regret for the ways that he has hurt God and others. He lays down the little that he has while offering all that he is. A broken and contrite heart is one that knows how little it deserves, yet how much it has received. To know only the first is to be self-loathing, but to know only the second is to be self-satisfied. And both kinds of hearts will be self-absorbed. We don't deserve all that God has forgiven us, but he has given us so much. So offering our hearts to our heavenly father reminds us how lost we are without him, but how loved we are by him. All God asks from David and all that he asks from us is our heart. 
Well, what does that mean to give our hearts to God? It means that every day we commit to living for him and we invite him to transform us from the inside out. When we offer him praise and we genuinely repent and we just offer our love and all that we have, it is enough and we are enough. God isn't looking for perfection. Matthew Henry says the broken heart is acceptable to God only through Jesus Christ. There's no true repentance without faith in him. Men despise what is broken, but God will not. He will not overlook it and he will not reject or refuse it. And I love that in the Old Testament, God couldn't accept broken animals as sacrifices. But because of what Jesus has done, he will receive our broken hearts. He delights in us and desires to bless us with wisdom and with joy so that we can live our lives for him, moving in a new direction. So as we close today, I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up. And I'd like us to go through this pattern of David's prayer in Psalm 51 together. Now I know it can be awkward and uncomfortable, and sometimes it's even hard for us to recognize how we've become disoriented away from God. But when we're open with ourselves and in front of God, we can live the life that he has for us. So I have a few questions that I'd like us to ask ourselves, and I know that God can speak to us in ways that only he can. So we're gonna take 30 seconds, just to ask ourselves these first two questions as we ask God to search our hearts. And if you'd like, you can actually pray through the little prayer prompt underneath each question. So the first question is, where have my eyes been fixed and what do I need forgiveness for? So let's take 30 seconds to consider these two questions just quietly. God wants us to acknowledge where we've become distracted or disoriented, but he doesn't want us to stay in this place. He wants us to move forward and receive transformation as he works in our lives. So let's consider these next two questions. Now, for some of you, you may have never experienced this joy of salvation that we're talking about today. But if you are tired of carrying the weight of shame and tired of doing things on your own, if you want to surrender your life to Jesus, I promise you that the joy you will experience in relationship with him is so much greater than anything the world can offer. When you commit to living for him and commit to him being Lord of your life, he will give you what it takes to live in a way that is pleasing to him. So if you want to make that decision today, I wanna invite you at the end of our service to come down and and pray with one of our, our prayer team and we would love to celebrate that decision today. But if you are a follower of Jesus and you just want to experience this joy in a fresh way today, I believe that God wants to remind you of his joy once again. So let's take another 30 seconds just to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us as we consider these next two questions. Do I need to experience the joy of salvation? And how do you want to use me?
now today, I'm gonna invite you to stand with us. The worship team is gonna lead us just for a few minutes in the course of amazing grace as we respond to the grace that God has shown us before we are dismissed this morning. Grace, how sweet the sound that saved the rich thy me. And I once was lost, but now I found was blind, but now I see twas grace. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious in the grace appear, the hour I fell. Now let's declare it today, sing it out. My chains are gone, I've been set free, my God, my Savior has ransomed me, and like a flood, His mercy reigns, unending love, what amazing grace, sing it one more time, my chains my chains are gone, my chains are gone, I've been set free, my God, my Savior, and like a flood, and like a flood, His mercy If you would like prayer, we are going to invite the prayer team to come up to the front. And if you have made a decision to follow Jesus for the first time today, we would love to pray with you. But if you just want someone to partner with you in prayer, we'd invite you to come in a moment. But before we go today, I'd like us to read together this closing doxology from the book of Jude, chapters 24 and chapter, sorry, verses 24 and 25. Let's read this together. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.